This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora, alaikum. Welcome to another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. Um, just a heads up, apologies about my voice. I'm not sick, this is just how I sound in the morning, so bear with. Um, but super excited to be sitting here and chatting with y'all for this episode. Since we last, or since I last released an episode, Ramadan has started for the year, so it's been exactly a week since we started last um, Monday, and um, it's gone by so quickly already. Um, I mean, I feel like Ramadan always comes around really quickly, and it goes by really quickly, but um, it's, yeah, it's strange just thinking about it while you're in the middle of it. Um, but for those who don't know what Ramadan is, it's a holy month of fasting for Muslims. So we fast between, or roughly between sunrise and sunset. So because we're kind of in the, well, getting to the winter months, it's actually, the fast is not too long. It's kind of, we started like just after five-ish till about uh, 6 p.m. So it's not too bad. I think in the countries where it's currently summer for them, um, the fasts go on for like 15 to 18 hours. So that's like another level of endurance. Um, and it's it's a wonderful month. Like as Muslims, we really look forward to it. And especially me, because um, this is... I've got to be very, very honest, outside of Ramadan, I'm not the best Muslim in terms of um, how often I pray and, um, you know, how often I read the Quran and that type of thing. So Ramadan's a really good opportunity to kind of, yeah, have a spiritual detox and get back into it. Um, But the past week has been a really good reflection in how important intention is and the fact that it's more than just about the fasting. So since Ramadan has started, life has been um, pretty full. Well, the past week, um, things were really, really full. And, um, you know, I was just meeting just the bare minimum requirements of Ramadan and I've noticed that when I just do the bare like minimum for Ramadan, I'm not getting um, everything that I could out of it, and like that spiritual detox is not that much of a detox right now. And you know, for those of you who are tuning in and have never really fasted, um, I hope my experience goes to show that it's more than just about the fasting. Um, fasting in itself is. Um, not it's only one component of the Ramadan journey and if you're not engaging with all the other components um, you know like really going above and beyond to read your Quran um, but on not only just read it but to um, 
to understand it, to really unpack it and figure out what it means to you and to do your extra prayers and to not live a slower slower life but um, a richer life too so it's it's more than just the fasting and my intentions the past week haven't been um, in line with like the Ramadan experience that I want to have so um, the next three weeks I'm going to buckle down and make the most make the most of it um, because you know even though I am fasting and I, I break the fast at the end of the day um, I'm still hungry I'm still hungry after eating physical food um, and drinking water because you know I haven't been engaging engaging sorry with the other components of Ramadan as much and you know it, it definitely makes me feel some feel some type of way um, and so yeah intentions are very very important and making the time to honor those intentions are really important and you know I as a Muslim I've I've done how many years of fasting I started when I was in year eight oh, actually yeah I started yeah I remember my first I, I remember my first Ramadan my parents were like oh do you want to um start out with half days just half days and I was like no 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 because I was just so excited to fast like the adults were fasting um (laughs) I was so so excited I wanted to do the full days and I really enjoyed it and the only day that I genuinely struggled was when we had a shared lunch and you know back then you know in my how old was I in year year eight like 12 or 13 year old mine I thought the whole Ramadan experience was just the fasting as well so um when the shared lunch was presented to me I was uh I struggled maybe I did accident not not even accidentally maybe I just actually did break my fast that day I'm not too sure I can't remember but I wouldn't be surprised if I did give to temptations but you know since then which was I'm just quickly doing the mess oh my gosh, 15 years ago, um, my idea of Ramadan has evolved and changed as I've kind of grown up and matured. And so now the past week, just having that kind of one dimensional experience has made me realize that, you know, there definitely is a lot more to Ramadan than just the fasting. And I'm super excited, honestly, to um, get back into it um with the next coming three weeks but that's my little wee ramadan update so far um and also the whole this whole covid thing is also put an interesting mix to ramadan because i think the previous two years it was either we were all out here living our best lives or everybody was in lockdown and we were all in it together but now with this new phase of covid and everyone being you know still life still has to go on but if you uh you know if you're ill with covid then you just have to stay at home um it's been strange like haven't been able to see family as much um currently four of my family members have tested positive for covid so that's like 
literally half of the family um so it's been really strange not being able to be with them because ramadan is a very special time as a family to get together um and i think this ramadan particularly i really wanted to like for arthur and i to be um close close to family um so for those who are just kind of tuning in and they're like who's arthur arthur is my husband and he reverted to um islam at towards the end of 2020 um so last year was his first ramadan but he was very much burnt out from work um and and couldn't really focus on ramadan so this year we were both just like yay okay like we're both you know he's in a much better place with his mahi now and so was really looking forward to making the most of ramadan and i've realized that there's only so much in my knowledge and skill that i can show arthur so i was really hoping that we could go around to the family house a lot more and um arthur could learn more um but that has been hard because we haven't been able to in like physically engage with the family and for all of us to pray together um but that's okay one step at a time we're making it work but um the intentions are there which is which is a very good starting step and we're slowly following that up with action as well so that is um the ramadan update uh for so far so what I wanted to talk about um, for this episode, it's kind of going to go to lots of different places, um, but it all kind of stems from an article that I read, and Serena Williams um, kind of highlighted her birth experience, and reading this um had made me feel so many different types of things um disappointment a lack of surprise um anger sadness um and fear because you know maybe at some point in life if i'm blessed enough to uh fall pregnant and have children um you know i could easily be in this situation and so it kind of triggered a whole range of emotions so Serena uh, Serena Williams professional tennis player um she's also she does lots of other things as well she's a badass she's a UNICEF goodwill ambassador businesswoman just straight up queen she um shared the birth story of her daughter Olympia recently I actually can't remember when her child was born but it must have been maybe a year or two years ago so um that she said that the pregnancy itself was quite easy but olympia was born by an emergency c-section because her heart rate had dropped like dramatically during the um contractions um she then went on to say that the surgery was quite smooth um but it was the 24 hours after giving birth that it was six days of you know she was like her life was kind of hanging in the air so it all started with a pulmonary embolism and I hope my um, health professional pals who are listening to this if I say something wrong please let me know afterwards but I'm trying I'm trying all right so it began with a pulmonary um embolism and so that's when one of the one or could be more than one um arteries in the lungs are blocked by a blood clot 
Um, and so she, Serena was saying this, she has previous medical history with this specific problem. So, you know, her fears were, you know, well informed and well grounded because there was that medical history. And so when she started to fall short of breath, she did not wait to, um, to let the nurses know. She was like, you know, I've, I've had this before. I know what this is. I am on the lookout for it. So she, yeah, she told the nurses immediately. Um, and then there were some other complications as well post-surgery. So her C-section wound popped open because of the really intense coughing as a result of the embolism. And so... Uh, when she returned to surgery, the doctors found a large hematoma, which is a swelling of clotted blood in her abdomen. And then she returned to um, the operating theater for a surgery that prevents clots from traveling to the lungs. And so by the time she finally made it, back home to be with her family um she spent the first six weeks of her daughter's life in bed um and while she's kind of telling this story she's kind of sharing the fact that she wasn't believed at first she really had to speak up and fight for her own um really fight for her right to be treated and taken seriously because if she didn't you know it all of those complications took her so close to death that is um terrifying and i think it's um i think it's um interesting that you know here is serena williams uh a woman who has, you know, she's a household name. She is a household name. She is famous. And you know that when you are an A-class celebrity like that, the world kind of parts the sea for you. Um, And so for someone like that to be treated in this particular way, I think the fact that she is a black woman has a lot to say about how we value the lives of how we value black lives essentially and you know I think I've spoken about it on the show before the the fact that um black women uh like I think the stat was three times more likely um to die due to you know pregnancy giving birth um health complications in that space and i think serena williams experience is um a a perfect example of that because you know she she is someone who has that privilege in the sense that she is a celebrity but that at the end of the day, she is still a black woman. And the way that the nurses and um, the doctors interacted with her, it kind of really didn't matter, to be honest, at the fact that she was, uh, that she is so famous. At the end of the day, she is a black woman and she 
had to fight and speak up and insisted um, that she was to be seen um, just because she knew that there wasn't something wrong. Um, and in the article, they kind of Serena kind of talks about the fact that when she did kind of alert nurses at the beginning, um, they told her, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. They dismissed her and said it was she was feeling a bit loopy because of all of the drugs that she had been put on um, for her C-section. And she really had to keep repeating herself time and time again before the nurses um, got the doctor. And, and then they realized actually there was something quite serious happening um, and she had to be rushed for to surgery again. Um, and it just goes to show that the, just the statistics that we hear around um, black women, it makes sense because our pain and our symptoms are minimized and dismissed um i was doing some research for this episode and i was reading this paper and and they were talking about how you know there's this perception that black women um have a higher pain tolerance and that kind of comes from that stereotype of a strong black independent woman and so um so when there is a complaint made it's not taken as seriously because there's this expectation that you know we are strong black women um that don't need any help or any support but I think also there was some research that I, I, I read as well that was saying that um, I think because just black lives in general are so dehumanized the sensitivity to um, black women's pain it just isn't there and the threshold is a lot higher compared to women from other ethnicities and that is horrifying and so when you're put in a position or you're interacting with a system where you already know from the get-go that your pain will be minimized or dismissed um and research also backs up the fact that black women are less likely to speak up with that knowledge of i know that i'm already going to be minimized or dismissed and so i'm just not even going to bring it up at all anyway um which is really sad like to know that the system you're interacting with just will will not care um and that might sound really harsh but you know from our health systems there is a certain level of care and duty that is to be expected but knowing that your pain is going to be minimized or dismissed um i feel like that that level of care is not there is is not there and taking this experience outside of specifically laboring um and and giving birth um it is it applies like across across the board and from my own experiences um i can 
I agree with that too. Like when I was doing the research for this episode, I was like, ah, yep. Like my mum has gone through that. My sister has gone through that. I've gone through that. Um, and, and, you know, extending that to outside my family. Uh, when I think of my um, black sisters that I personally know, I think we all have stories in this space too, which is um, horrifying that biases can creep in um biases can creep in when people um who you expect to treat you the same no matter what um is really scary and i think um that's why it's really important or i try my best to really understand the system and understand what rights we have so you know, we can better support each other because, you know, once you know your own rights or you have that information, that's powerful because then you can better advocate for yourself and better navigate um, that system. But I think the wider community, not everyone's going to have that um, knowledge or education. Um, and, you know, I can tell that when, and I'm not just talking about um interacting with the healthcare system now but you know when I've accompanied um my parents or just elderly in the community when I advocate and support and I'm present the difference in treatment is actually insane but that level of treatment should be there from the get-go so after like reading that article where Serena just shares her experience um, giving birth to her daughter, it kind of um, made me start thinking about anti-blackness um, because, I, you know, I think we talk about racism a lot in the wider sense, but we don't actually specifically talk about anti-blackness enough. And so just from the get-go, what is the difference between um, racism and anti-blackness? So racism, I think, is kind of a catch-all for how different races um are systematically and stereotypically treated right but different races um experience racism in completely different ways and um so let's kind of break down all the different terms so in my mind and this is kind of how I'm working with the definition of race at the moment race is a social construct and something that we as humans have decided this concept um I mean this signifies and symbolizes the the this particular type of human body but it's all a social construct like who where the lines are drawn between the different races um all a social construct and so racism is the belief that um the racial differences 
have there's a structure to these to these races and um, these differences make a particular kind of race um, inherently superior and so therefore the other races are inherently inferior so it's kind of like this um, system where races are put in this hierarchy and if you're at the top um, you are inherently superior and you know our world and the systems that we engage with today have been built on this belief and we see it now I think it's kind of evolved and it seems a lot more sophisticated but if you go back and you look at the history everything kind of stems from this idea that um inherently because of the differences um in the differences between the race in terms of traits and capacity um capacities and um and culture everything combined because of that difference a certain race is um superior and others are inferior and so racism is a system um because it's not it can't really be pinned down to a individual character flaw or a personal moral failing it isn't an illness but racism is a system which further breaking that down that system is structures it is policies it is cultural practices it is cultural norms it is stereotypes that we have and hold um, and create space for that the majority or that superior race creates space for that continually perpetuates um, the idea of that that inferior versus superior race and so these systems they um structure opportunities and they assign value on how people look you know you you see a person that looks that type a particular way they have certain traits and you're like oh because you look like this you belong to this race and i've been told that this is where this race is in the hierarchy um which is sounds horrible when you say it out loud like that um and it sounds like so rudimentary right like the idea of an inferior and superior race but when you break down everything that we see in our world now you can understand how it all kind of comes from this idea so that is that is how i see racism so what is anti-blackness and anti-blackness is the name of the specific kind of racism or racial prejudice that is directed towards black people and you know i just want to tease out more why it's important to kind of make that distinction between racism and anti-blackness and i think a lot of different communities can relate to or have experienced racism but it affects people differently depending on their identity their you know lived experience um and so then to say that it's all racism is a bit um simplifies the problem to the point where it 
kind of erases the problem, if you know what I mean. Like, for example, racism can capture a whole range of things. It can capture Asian students being burdened with the model minority label and being expected to be um, perfect with their maths to, um, you know, for being denied job opportunities because of your ethnic name to, you know, the death of George Floyd where he, where that police officer who I refuse to name, by the way, um, kneeled on his neck to the point where he passed away. And you see how, you know, all of those things that I've said, they're all examples of racism. Um, But because it kind of catches all of this behavior, that it's too general to kind of catch it's yeah too general to catch on the specific problem of anti-blackness and i think what takes anti-blackness to the next level is anti-blackness kind of highlights this this dehumanization of black lives um and you can see how like there is this anti-blackness because it shows up in the stats right um for example, compared to white and Asian um, people, black defendants at court crown are most likely to be um, remanded in custody. Between 2017 and 2018, black people in Britain were 10 times more likely to be stopped and searched by by police than white people and three times more likely than Asian people. Black people are more likely to be unemployed and homeless than all other racial minority groups. Um, and so there is this disparity um, in how black people experience racism compared to other minority groups. And so I think it's really important that when we talk about racism, that we also create the space to talk about anti-blackness, because that is a specific kind of racism that just goes to a completely um, different level. And it actually kind of grosses me out, to be honest, because it's this framework that society as a whole is saying not only are you the inferior race you are not even a person like it's it's that kind of racism that um hu- like black lives black humanity is not even recognized there literally is this sense of disregard and disgust or black lives and you can see that like if we go back to the beginning of this episode and we talk about you know Serena's story and the fact that black women are more likely um, to die and black women uh, are less likely to have their um, pain like physical pain and complaints heard because it's often minimized um, and dismissed and that's I feel like it really does come stem from that sense of um, inability to recognize humanity. And I think um, this term, um, before it was known as anti-blackness, um, 
Professor Frank B. Wilderson, who is an African-American studies professor, he kind of coined the term Afro-pessimism. And that term kind of argues that anti-blackness is is a structural reality in our larger society. And blackness is, is tied or weaved to slaveness in a way that it's hard to separate the two right because if you think back to america um where there there was the black slavery right um that was kind of the origin of that relation between humanity and and blackness and i just yeah it actually it hurts it hurts my heart because anti-blackness speaks to the racism but also speaks to this hatred of blackness um and then also this anti-blackness um thinking kind of um it's a system where violence against black people i'm not saying that it's endorsed but it's definitely not questioned at all not questioned at all um which makes me very uncomfortable and another thing that makes me very uncomfortable about anti-blackness is that not only does it say black lives really don't mean anything at all it also is a measuring point for others to measure their humanity or humanness against it um because you know you know someone might experience some other lack of privileges but at least they're not black right because we all kind of have this understanding that um being black is not the best thing to be and the fact that we all kind of know that and it's like this unspoken thing it just goes a lot to um say that it's just a racist problem there is specifically this anti-blackness sentiment and to have conversations around prejudice and racism and structural racism is not enough there needs to be um there needs to be more than that because racism didn't kill george floyd it was this anti-blackness that is I feel like the true pandemic at the moment and so when we're talking about anti-blackness we don't um just talk about the social the economic the history we don't just talk about racism we need to unpack the social economic historical and cultural dimensions of human life um and I feel as if this conversation um not needs to be happened not only between Pakeha people but non-black people of color as well and you know as as a African who isn't an African American I feel like I've I've kind of got two a foot in one world and a foot in the other um and i have spoken about this on the show before um speaking strictly from my experience but 
how I feel the different, what the difference is between the African American experience and the African experience. Um, because I personally feel um, as if, like, I'm personally not comfortable saying the, the N word. Um, and I know that my, my ancestors' history and, like, my country's history isn't the same as the history of African Americans. Um, but living in a country like New Zealand, where my skin tone is a lot darker, um, I feel like I definitely experience um, the sentiments of anti-blackness. And I, I just want to put that out there. I know that my experience is different as an African Somali woman, it's different to African Americans. Um, but I feel like because I'm living in New Zealand, uh, living in a country like Aotearoa, and yet, uh, you know, I, I do have a darker skin tone, I think I'm just uh, a black girl, and that nuanced history or that that difference isn't really taken into account here it's just that face value of okay this girl has darker skin um she is yeah she is to be treated in xyz way um so that's interesting living in a country you know where we have this tension between biculturalism and multiculturalism but then to be um, viewed by everyone in this country regardless of if they're part of the majority or on the fringes of society um, sorry in terms of being a minority group the fact that I'm still seen as just a a black girl either way um, and then to be treated in a particular way um, and when I'm talking about anti-blackness in the way that um, black people are specifically treated I have noticed anti-black behavior towards me in Aotearoa from all walks of life it's not just from Pakeha people it's from our um, immig within our immigrant community as well and um you know, anti-blackness, unfortunately, lives everywhere. And it's not just a problem specific to Pakeha people. And I think the sense of colorism is very, very real. I'm not saying that colorism is the exact same as blackness, but because of colorism, it's kind of a structure for this anti-blackness to, to breed and grow on, right? So colorism is the idea that, um, you know, the, the darker you are, there are negative connotations of that, and the lighter you are, um, there are positive co connotations of that. So because of that positive slash negative connotation, there is the sliding scale of privilege, and the lighter you are, the more privilege that you have, and the darker you are, the less privilege that you have. And um, I grew up with this in the Somali community, uh, thankfully, my parents never um, subscribed to this, and they just wanted us to be um, healthy either way. But 
you know, in the smiling community, if people are very concerned about being darker, and so skin bleaching is quite common. And so growing up, I thought this was just a Somali thing. But as I grew up and um, became friends with more um, people of color from other backgrounds, they also said the same thing as well. So this colorism combined with this anti-blackness is is, is everywhere. Um, and I think that's so... That's horrible. That really is horrible. Because, you you know, it's interesting. You'd think that um, as people of colour, we all kind of experience racism in our different ways. But we're all, uh, well, not exactly in the same boat. But we're all kind of weathering the same storm. You know, some boats will be hit more than others. Um, if I'm really running with this metaphor... But we're theoretically kind of weathering the same storm. Um, So you think there would be um, a stronger sense of solidarity, um, but there isn't. And I kind of want to speak to my experience now that we're talking about colorism and anti-blackness. I kind of want to use this as an opportunity to talk about my... um, thoughts on being a Somali, Tau'iwi, um, and Titiriti, um, and my interactions with Tangata Whenua, um, because, and I, I honestly, I don't know where this idea came from, but I just remember, um, growing up this, um, this sense of, Tangtafenua. Um, if we go back to this idea of colorism slash anti-blackness, um, and the point I was saying before that you know I know that um, me being an African um, is not the same as the African American experience, but if we take that into the um, new Aotearoa context, I think in Aotearoa the darker your skin is you know, that anti-blackness behavior comes up regardless because of that colorism. And so growing up, I mean, I definitely saw myself as black, um, but the way that we, and this is not just in the Somali community, I think speaking more widely to the migrants, um, to iwi, um, community as well, the way that we looked at Tangata Whenua, that same, not the exact same energy, but like that, that anti-blackness um, kind of came up as well. And I think it's combined specifically with the model myth minority as well. And I think because of that anti-blackness, um, because and that model myth minority, the way that we interacted, talked about, thought about um, Tangta Whenua, not great at all. And I think for a long time in my life, when I thought about race relations in Aotearoa, um, you know, for lots of different reasons, I just thought it wasn't my place to do anything. It's like when you move to a new country and... um, the two parents are fighting, right? Like, and I, I, in this, um, 
analogy or or metaphor, whatever it's called, you know, mum and dad, um, tangata whenua and, uh, you know, pakiha, to iwi, they were like the two parents who were fighting. And, um, and if we really run with this metaphor, you know, the pakiha to iwi was the parent who wore the relationship in the pants. Oh, wore the pants in the relationship. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm still waking up. Because um, if you think back to, if you think about the world that we interact with, it's a Pakiha world in the sense that the structures that we see, the policies that we engage with, um, you know, how much um, is it, does it reflect the Maori worldview and how much um, consultation um, do Maori people have in the way that these structures are set up? And if you look to the history of Aotearoa, um, there's basically none. So when you move to a country, mum and dad are arguing, but clearly one of the parents um, wears the pants in the relationship. Like you subscribe to this pakiha world as well and you don't and because you're also um getting used to a new country and there's a lot of struggles being a migrant you can't really see past your your own struggles you just kind of listen to the parent that wears the pants um and so there is a lot of racism um that I witnessed growing up um, towards tangata whenua. And I think also there's this idea floating around that, you know, we work hard, um, we have pulled ourselves out of the situation. Why can't um, tangata whenua do the same for themselves? And, um, oh, Gosh, even just talking about this now, I just kind of shake my head. But it's not my, you know, it's not my fault. We, this is why it's important to unlearn and to have these conversations and to have this awareness. And to be honest, I cannot, thinking back on it now, I cannot um, pinpoint it to a particular point in my life. But I think there were just certain things that um, happened that made me realize that, you know, as migrant to iwi um we have an important role to play when we talk about um being better partners to tetiriti um that i just didn't think about like i thought i wasn't um included in the conversation there was no place for me in this conversation and i didn't, didn't even see the need for that conversation to happen because you know i was like if you can work hard out of any kind of situation so you know we don't need to have this conversation at all it's just a matter of having these um conversations more oh it's just a matter of working hard sorry um and so I think actually it wasn't the penny didn't really drop until I started learning about the history of colonization in this country and um because i don't mean we i think from the years of 
year six upwards every year we learned about um, the Treaty of Waitangi um, and I felt like I didn't really properly learn about the history of Titiriti until maybe a couple of years ago even though it was brought up every single every single academic year um, it wasn't taught in a way that really highlighted what was actually going on and the injustices and wrongs that um, happened to Tangata Whenua and how that really was um, after that it was a slippery slope and now it's gotten to the point where so much land has been stolen um, colonization the forced cultural assimilation um, the fact that it was illegal to speak te reo Māori honestly horrendous like the culture the language the land stripped away and replaced by this this hatred replaced by this you know and and to say racism against Māori again it's just a catch-all that erases the problem that's really there at hand similar to this anti-blackness right it's a specific kind of racism and you know growing up as a migrant um I definitely internalized that racism and it wasn't until I start le- really started learning about the history um, that I thought about the wrongs that were done um, and I realized that there's a specific kind of racism against tangata whenua in New Zealand that kind of gives me the similar ick and uncomfortable um, feelings that anti-blackness um, does. Um, and and the specific role we play in this that I was like no like this is not enough we need to actively be partners and we need to actively honor titiriti and um, you know that begins with kind of unpacking that specific kind of racism we have here in Aotearoa um, towards tangata whenua and um you know, before I was saying how I couldn't really see past my own struggles as a migrant girl, um, but the more that I've learned about the history, the more that I've learned that there is, you know, it's not the exact same, but there's kind of this overlap and shared experience. And, um, you know, for me personally, that has been um, a fertilizer of the solidarity um, and this fertilizer um, has made me want to actively combat this anti tangata whenua that, um, that has been around me. And, you know, one of the happy things that have come, that has come out of that journey is that, you know, that realization that we don't have the exact same experience sure there's like a bit of a overlap um but we don't have the exact same uh you know we don't have the exact same experience but there's actually a, a huge overlap in um terms of similar cultural values and actually now that I'm talking out loud about this experience it's made me realize that I you know usually I kind of dread the question 
where do you come from um it just yeah it just kind of gives me the ick because I know that pe- what people are really asking as well where do you really come from and but when you know Tangata uh, Fenua asks me that question I love it I love it because we're and we're not asking from the sense of where do you really come from it's like that um value of genealogy means so much it's just another way of understanding each other and learning more about each other and um when I've asked that question um of someone who is Māori um it has produced beautiful conversations that have actively helped me um in that journey of combating that racism we have in Aotearoa towards um toward tangata whenua and it, it's been so interesting and I think you know there needs to be more conversations had in amongst our um migrant to iwi around how we be better partners to um te tiriti and how we as a community combat this racism because we play a role in this as well like you know even though we are to iwi um that weren't the colonizers of this land you know we still by us being here we are visitors we are settlers and we automatically play a role in um you know, taking away a bit of that tino ranga tera um, of tangata whenua just by being here um, as migrants, as visitors to this land. So then we need to be having more conversations about how we can honour it better, how we can combat that um, specific um, racism and just kind of acknowledging that the wrongs are not all on Pakeha people in Aotearoa and realising that this is not just an argument between um, mum and dad and so therefore we need to shut our mouths and keep out of it. Um, We are very much involved in this as well and how do we foster that solidarity? Um, uh, I've just noticed the time and we need to start wrapping up this episode but I hope that this episode has been an invitation to then go and explore, um, you know, this, what does anti being, and oh, what does this anti, how does this anti-blackness show up in your life? Um, and so, and when we do the work um, on being actively anti-racist, how do we also actively be anti um yeah, how do we combat the anti-blackness and how do we combat the um, tangata whenua specific racism here in Aotearoa. Anyways, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns and catch you at the next one. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. To keep spinning the yarns, let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Headscarfs and Good Yarns or email us at headscarfsandgoodyarn at gmail.com.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.